Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. Good morning. Let's take our Bibles, please, and go to Acts chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be reading a few verses concerning the birth of the New Testament church as we begin this emphasis for our missions conference. Acts chapter 2, begin reading in verse 1 down through verse 12. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia, and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia in Egypt and the parts of Libya around Cyrene. And strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? In Acts chapter 2, at the beginning of the church on the great feast day of Pentecost, there was confusion by those who heard the gospel in their own language. What does this mean? And I submit to you today that 2,000 years later, there is still a great deal of confusion about the spiritual truths of Christianity. And one of the areas that I want to talk about briefly this morning is the confusion about the nature of New Testament missions. Let me illustrate it by a story that uh, my wife and I experienced when we were going down a number of years ago to the country of Haiti. We have several families who serve there, and we were flying, and my wife and I were sitting on one side of the aisle, and across the aisle was, was a cowboy. Now, I knew that because he had on a really big 10-gallon hat. And when you see a guy on an airplane with a really big 10-gallon hat, you make a deduction that he's probably a cowboy. So I decided I'm going to try to evangelize this fella. And so I said to him, hey, why are you going to to Haiti? And he said, I'm a missionary. I said, oh, really? Tell me about it. He said, yeah, I'm from Oklahoma, and I've got oil wells, and I go down twice every year, and I feed hungry kids. I am a missionary. Now, I would submit to you this morning a question. Is that man a biblical New Testament missionary? Or is he a Christian who has a heart of love for kids who have needs? Is he a missionary? Is that New Testament missions? 
Now, we don't have to be confused about the matter because God's Word gives us the answer. And we're going to be looking at that answer in all four of the sessions that we will have this week, beginning this morning. Uh, I'm going to introduce the answer to that question by talking about what I call the three-legged stool of missions. Now, maybe you've never heard that term because it's not in the New Testament, but the concept certainly is there based on the illustration that I would like to share with you. Uh, I did not grow up in a Christian home. I, I grew up in East Tennessee. My father was a plumber for Eastman Kodak and also a farmer on the side. And so uh, we grew up unchurched and, and without the Lord. I came to Christ at the age of 10 through a vacation Bible school outreach of a local church, and God worked in my heart and saved me and then later called me into ministry. I was the youngest of three boys, and as the youngest of three boys, very early I started doing a lot of the chores on the farm for my dad. One of those was milking a cow by hand, actually multiple cows at times during the years of growing up. But I found out in milking a cow by hand that you really need a three-legged stool. Now, why do I say a three-legged stool? Because a two-legged stool is absolutely worthless. If you stand up, the thing's going to fall over and you can't use it. There is nothing good about a two-legged stool when you're milking a cow. But also I discovered that a four-legged stool, though it works, one of those legs always gets between you and the cow, and it's hard to work around that fourth leg. But I discovered one day, finally, a three-legged stool is absolutely perfect for milking the cow. You can get close, and it will stand up. And folks, God has given us in the New Testament a three-legged stool. Uh, those things which really make up what New Testament missions is. If you pull out one of those three legs, you really no longer have biblical New Testament missions. If you start adding legs to, to that stool, that three-legged stool, you're going, to, you're going to confuse the issue, and that's going to get in the way of God's work being carried out. So what is the three-legged stool of New Testament missions? We find it in the Acts and in the Epistles. It is evangelism, it is discipleship, which includes leadership training, and it is church planting. Now, there are many things that fit under the umbrella of those three legs of that stool. But we're going to be talking this week about each of those in the first three sessions, the three-legged stool of evangelism this morning. Tonight, we're going to talk about the three-legged stool of discipleship. And then finally, church planting. And then on Tuesday night, we'll conclude this part of the series of the conference with an emphasis on the sending church and how a local church is to facilitate evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. So in many ways, this series this week is a, a, a series on a biblical philosophy of missions. But we're also going to be looking at the individual components. And I trust that your heart will be stirred to do evangelism, that your heart will be stirred to do discipleship, and that your heart will be stirred to be part of a church planting movement for the work of God around the world that we call missions today. So we go back to Acts chapter 2. Let me remind you, as we look this morning at evangelism, that the book of Acts is the first volume of church history. It covers the time from the beginning of the New Testament church, about 30 years until almost the death of the Apostle Paul. 
It has sometimes been called the Acts of the Holy Spirit because it is obviously the work of the Spirit of God in founding the church and then building New Testament churches. But what we sometimes forget is that the book of Acts is also the link between the Gospels and the Epistles. If you did not have the book of Acts in your Bible, your New Testament would begin with four Gospel books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of those Gospel books ends with Christ having died on the cross, being raised from the dead, and He's told the disciples to wait in the upper room for the promise of the Spirit, which they really probably did not fully understand. And so we come to the end of John's gospel, and there they are, 120 disciples in the upper room, and they're waiting on someone to come. They're waiting on the birth of the New Testament church. If you did not have the book of Acts, you would turn the next page in your Bible from John's gospel, and it would say, Paul the Apostle to the church at Rome. And if you didn't have Acts, you would say, who is this guy Paul? Never heard of him. And how did the gospel get all the way from those 120 in the upper room to the capital of the empire of the world? How did it happen? The answer is the book of Acts. So the book of Acts is the story of the beginning of New Testament missions. It is the compass which guides us. Now, there are things in the book of Acts that we need to understand that are not for today. Uh, there are things that are apostolic in nature that were only for the New Testament church during that time period to validate the gospel and to demonstrate God's power upon the apostles. For example, uh, Peter walking down the street, the, the book of Acts tells us, his shadow falling across people healed them of their sicknesses. So let me ask you, Pastor, have you recently been walking through the hospital corridors here in uh, Chandler and your shadow falling across those sick people has healed them? Has that happened recently? How about in the last four or five years? Never, never. Okay, why? Because there are certain things like the apostolic gifts, Peter's shadow, tongues, other things that were given just to the first century church. And when God's Word became complete, that which was incomplete, was done away with. But there are things in the book of Acts that are for today. Did you know that the number one evidence, you can actually go into the book of Acts and study it out and count it, the number one evidence in the book of Acts of being filled with the Spirit of God is not speaking in tongues. The number one evidence of being filled with the Spirit of God in the book of Acts is speaking the Word of God with boldness being bold in our evangelism. So this morning, <clears throat> we're going to go to the theme of evangelism here in Acts chapter 2, the beginning of the church. We're going to learn two very important principles. First of all, the force of evangelism, which is found in the priority of preaching, and the focus of evangelism, which is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So let's begin, first of all, the force of evangelism. We read the story. It is the great feast day of Pentecost. Josephus, the early church historian, who was not a believer, by the way, recorded that at the, at the feast of Pentecost, it was common for a million Jewish people to come from all around the known world for the great festival of Pentecost. 
So the disciples were tarrying there in the upper room, 120, and they were praying. They were all in one accord, and they were waiting on the Spirit of God to come in power. And while that was happening, a million Jews visiting the city, many of them were making their way up the south entrance of the temple, up those steps where they would have gone through the ritual waters of baptism uh, to purify themselves as Jews, and then to go up and worship Jehovah God on the great festival of Pentecost. And suddenly, with this open-air environment uh, above the, the, the steps on the south side of the city that we call the upper room, suddenly there is the sound of a rushing mighty wind. There are uh, firebrands that appear on the heads of the 120. And those people coming up by the thousands look up the hill. They see it and they say, what is this? And they go up and they ask, what does this mean? And Peter stands up and he preaches the gospel to them. That's the setting of how we understand evangelism in the beginning of the New Testament church. Now, in an effort today to appeal to man's role as a consumer, many churches have transitioned from being a place of biblical worship to being a purveyor of popular entertainment. My wife and I now live in Columbia, South Carolina, and we were driving down uh, the road to our prayer meeting at our church on Wednesday night, and we passed a church, a new evangelical church in the area, and they had a big sign up. There was a storm coming. It was that, that hurricane that was coming through, and we were having our prayer meeting, and it said, because of the storm, Wednesday night movie night is canceled. And I thought, well, they should have canceled it anyway long ago. But you see, today, uh, the place of biblical worship has become a purveyor of popular entertainment. Man has become the recipient of the church's ministry, not God. And in such churches, evangelism has degenerated into worldly marketing. And that is not God's plan for the church. God's plan for the church, God's plan for evangelism is preaching. Did you know that evangelism, which is the good news, was delivered primarily throughout the New Testament in the book of Acts and in the epistles by the means of preaching, preaching the gospel. Now, there are two primary Greek words in the New Testament, and this is not about a Greek lesson, but but it's good to know these, these, these words because they really tell us what preaching is. There is a verb that is most commonly used in the New Testament for preaching. It is the word keruso, and it means to proclaim as a herald. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in the message. But there is a second word. It is usually a noun, and its root is the word that we refer to as kerugma. And so kerugma is preaching reference to the content. In other words, what we preach. Keruso is how we preach. So the New Testament tells us as a local church how we are to give the gospel, how we are to preach, and it tells us what we are to preach. And that very reality is being confused by churches all across America today. So let's look first of all at the force of evangelism, which is the priority of preaching. Did you know the first event of church history following the coming of the Spirit was a sermon? It's here in this passage. Look at verse 14. 
after they ask the question, what does it mean? And some say, well, these guys are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice. And he said unto them, ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. What's Peter doing? He's preaching the gospel. Look at verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. What's he doing? He is preaching the gospel. He is lifting up his voice. He is crying aloud the message of salvation. He is not marketing the church. He is preaching the good news. And that is what God has given us as our responsibility in missions in this church age. And it's very interesting that the book of Acts is largely the record of apostolic preaching. Acts chapter 4 verse 2 records that the Jewish officials, officials were upset because the apostles, quote, taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Uh, Acts chapter 8 verse 4, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere, what? Preaching the word. Where did the apostles get such an emphasis? They got it from Christ. Matthew 4, 17, Jesus began to preach. Matthew uh, 10, 7, Christ said, as you go preach. In our theme verse, Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Did you know, Pastor, Jesus was the greatest preacher that ever lived. The number one verb, action verb, in the Gospels relating to Christ is the word preach. Jesus was a preacher above everything else, and he was the greatest preacher that ever lived. How do we know that? Because on one occasion he preached for three days, and the people stayed with him without food. I dare say I could take you to noon today and you would abandon me. Even my sweet wife would probably go to lunch. <laughs> Why? Because nobody preached like Jesus. And though, folks, we can't preach like Jesus in the sense with his, his power and authority as God, he has given us authority and he has commanded us to go into all the world and to do the same thing to every creature. It is the priority of preaching in the New Testament church. Did you know preaching has rightly held a priority place in Christianity throughout the ages? And those who study revivals understand that you cannot separate a biblical long-term revival from the power of preaching. The Reformation was initiated and largely spread after a thousand years of darkness. Martin Luther called the period from 500 to 1500 when the Roman Catholic Church held Europe in the bondage of darkness. He called it the devil's millennium. But when that devil's millennium was broken, it was broken by the preaching of the gospel by men like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and Knox. Someone asked Martin Luther one day, why do you preach like you preach? None of the other priests do that. And Luther said, I preach like Jesus Christ died on the cross yesterday, like he rose from the dead today, and like he's coming back tomorrow. That's how I preach. And that kind of preaching shook Europe and brought Europe out of the bondage of the Dark Ages. 17th century Puritanism in the back streets of London and Holland was emphasizing sound biblical preaching. The great awakening of the 18th century under George Whitfield, John Wesley, and Jonathan Edwards was a preaching movement. And the 19th century saw great evangelists and pastors who were preachers such as D.L. Moody, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Joseph Parker, and Alexander McLaren. God uses preaching for His glory in the church age. 
That's how we spread the good news. Even the architecture of church history reflects the priority of preaching. Did you know during the devil's millennium from 500 to 1500, if you had gone into a Roman Catholic church, even as you would see today, there would not be a pulpit in the center of the church because preaching was not important. What you would see would be the altar because mass is that which is important to the Roman Catholic system. But with the beginning of the Reformation, the lectern, if there was one at all in the Roman Catholic Church, would have been over at the side. Gradually, it was moved from the time of Luther till today until if you go into a biblical Bible-preaching church in their auditorium, there will be a pulpit front and center because God has ordained preaching the gospel. And the church must preach the gospel. But tragically, in so many churches today across America, the pulpit is being replaced by a stage because the preaching of the gospel is being replaced by entertainment and the apostasy of our land. So God has put a priority on preaching. Now, what is this preaching that we're talking about? You say, well, Brother Stephen, you're talking about our pastor on Sunday standing up preaching the Word of God. No, I am not talking about that. Now, I hope that if your pastor ever abandoned the Word of God, you would throw him out on his ear because the pastor is to be faithful in the preaching of the Word of God. But this word, keruso, which means to proclaim as a herald, is not just used in the book of Acts of pulpit ministry like I'm doing this morning. It is actually used very commonly for one-on-one -on -one evangelism. Now, I want to make sure you understand that I believe that the pastor of the New Testament church should be a man because the Bible makes that requirement. But folks, every person in this room is to be a preacher of the gospel because we are to go, and as a herald of the king, we are to give the good news and tell them that Jesus died and was buried and rose again, and we call them to accountability. We are to be heralds of the king, because the king died to save us from our sins. You say, Brother Stemmen, I really don't understand how preaching is one-on-one -on -one evangelism when what you're doing this morning is preaching. Maybe I could ask the question this way, what is the difference between teaching and preaching? We're going to have Sunday school a little bit later, Adult Bible Fellowship, I believe it's called here, and uh, there's going to be some teaching going on. What is the difference between teaching and preaching? And it's found in, in the concepts of the New Testament, both by word meaning and by example. Teaching is primarily instruction. It is giving the truth. K. Russo is proclaiming that truth as a herald and calling people to action based on that proclamation. So we are to preach the gospel here in this pulpit, and you and I are to preach the gospel daily from house to house and door to door and job to job and airplane to airplane. We are to be heralds of the gospel. That's how God has ordained the building of His church. You say, Brother Stedman, what, what if I'm going to be witnessing to my friend? You know, this morning you're in the pulpit and, and you have on your suit and, and you're using broad gestures and you're using your big voice. Well, I'm doing that because the context demands that. 
But if I were to go with someone today who is unsaved to McDonald's for the purpose of preaching the gospel to them, I would not wear my three-piece suit. I would not stand up by the table in McDonald's and with my big voice say, let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 2. I wouldn't do that. I would use my quiet inside voice. And I would tell them of Jesus Christ and His salvation. You say, well, Brother Stedman, what, what makes preaching preaching? It is not how loud your voice is. It is not how broad your gesture is. It is the authority behind the gospel of thus saith the Lord. God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. And we can do it with a soft voice and kind, weeping words but we are with authority to deliver the message, the good news. We are to proclaim it as a herald. So let me ask you a question this morning. When is the last time that you as a believer in Jesus Christ have on purpose sat down with someone else and gone through the scriptures and with love and with a tear in your eye, you have boldly proclaimed the glorious gospel of Christ to them? When is the last time? God's plan for the church is preaching the gospel. And the force of that evangelism is Caruso. It is heralding as a messenger of the king. Then the second thing we want to see very quickly this morning is the focus of evangelism. We not only need to understand how we preach the gospel, but we need to have the right content to the gospel. You know, you can have a person who is a dynamic speaker or a very influential personality, but if they do not have the gospel right, they will be a false teacher that sends people to hell. I grew up in Tennessee, and after I got saved, I went to a denominational church, and I heard about one of the preachers in our denomination that wrote in the margin of his, his notes for a Sunday morning, weak point, yell loud. But folks, you can never overcome a weak point, no matter how loud you yell. We are to give the gospel accurately. And so here in Acts chapter 2, we move to verse 22, and we see the focus of evangelism, which is the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is the kerugma. It is the content. So the word to preach, which is a noun, the kerugma, is that which we are to preach. And Peter is going to set an example for us about what we are to preach. You know, there's a lot of confusion today about what we're supposed to preach. Pastor, I heard about someone at a community who came to me and said, Pastor, I, I shared the gospel with someone last week. And I said, wonderful, tell me about it. They said, well, I told them what a great church we have. Now, folks, don't misunderstand. It's great to tell people what a great church you have and what a great pastor you have and how much you love Tri-City Baptist Church, but that is not the same as preaching the gospel. It's good to invite people to church, but that's not the same as you individually evangelizing. So what are you to be telling people if you are preaching the gospel to them? Well, let's go back to chapter 2, verse 22. Again, what has happened here? It is the great Jewish festival of Pentecost. Uh, the people hear the sound of rushing mighty wind, the cloven tongues of fire appear, and Peter stands up and preaches to thousands outside the upper room. And those thousands are saying, what does this mean? We read about it in verse 12 a moment ago. And Peter stands up and says, this is about Jesus. 
and it's about the last days. Look at verse 17. He says, quoting from Joel, And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Peter's saying it's about the last days. Now that's a really significant point in this text because in the Old Testament economy, and remember we're still in the Old Testament economy in the beginning of Acts chapter 2, the last days referred to the first coming of Messiah. You know, in the New Testament era, we have the the word phrase, the last days, refers to the second coming of Messiah. So we understand that. So Peter is saying, you ask what this is all about? It's about the last days. And that means Messiah has come. And so these Jews are going to say, Messiah is here. Where is our Messiah? And Peter's going to say, you killed him about two months ago on a cross. And they're not going to accept that. I mean, folks, it's hard for us to imagine the shock of these people when Peter tells them it's about Jesus and you crucified them and they do not believe. So Peter is going to lay out, like, much like a lawyer, a legal argument for who Jesus is and what he came to do, and he gives four points to the gospel presentation, to the kerygma. And folks, if you are giving the gospel and you do not include these four points, you do not really include all of the gospel. I remember as a young man, I went away to Bible camp. I was in a denominational church, and we had uh, a Campus Crusade for Christ came to do evangelism training at our camp. I was a teenager. And they said, this is how you present the gospel. Point number one, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, folks, I know that God loves us and sent Christ to die for us, but I could not find anywhere in my Bible where where the New Testament church began the gospel with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. As a matter of fact, if you don't get saved, that plan is not good at all. So what is the gospel? Peter gives us four points. Number one, he begins with the deity of Christ. Look at verse 22. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you as ye yourselves also know. Peter is saying that you must believe that Jesus Christ is God. You say, Brother Stephen, where do you find that in that statement? He uses a reference here to the the miracles that Christ did, and he calls them wonders and signs. Now, these are not three different types of miracles. They're actually the same. Jesus did miracles... And the people wondered at them. We've never seen anything like this. But then Peter says these are signs. Signs of what? What's Peter saying? John Polhill in his commentary correctly makes the point. Throughout Acts, the term wonders only occurs in conjunction with signs, a testimony to the fact that mere marvels have no value in themselves except as they point beyond themselves to the divine power behind them and so lead to faith, end of quote. Paul Hill was right. Peter was saying, look folks, these signs that you wondered at are signs that Jesus is God. He was a man approved of God among you. He is God and you must believe that he is deity. Now that is exactly what Jesus preached. You remember Jesus said to the Pharisees, if ye believe not that I am Jehovah, ye shall die in your sins. 
And in John's shorter epistle, he said, if you do not believe that Jesus Christ is God come in human flesh, you are not of God. Folks, people who do not believe that Jesus is God have not yet come to Christ. And that's where we begin with the gospel. We preach the deity of Christ. And then number two, verse 23, Peter moves to the death of Christ. He says, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. There would be a question the Jews would have been asking in their minds, though it's not recorded here. But it would make logical sense that, that Peter's telling them that Jesus is God, and the Jews would be thinking, no doubt, if he was God, why did he let us kill him? And he gives the answer that there was a determinate council with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in eternity past, and they determined there would be no other way of salvation other than the shedding of the blood of Christ, the innocent Lamb of God, for the sins of the world. And so here he preaches the atoning death of Christ, the shedding of blood. And with many other words, the end of the chapter says Peter exhorted them. I'm sure Peter dealt with sin and, and their lostness, but he preaches the blood, the efficacious atonement blood of Christ for the sins of the world. So we preach the deity of Christ, the death of Christ, and then thirdly, he preached the resurrection of Christ. Verse 24 down through verse 32, we don't have the time to read it all, but he gives nine verses quoting from the Old Testament prophet David, who was also a king, that God would not leave his soul in the realm of the dead, but would raise him from corruption. And, and so he quotes David, verse 24, whom God hath raised up, referring to Christ, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held of it. Look at verse 32. This Jesus hath God raised up whereof we all are witnesses. He preaches the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Folks, what difference does it make if a man died on a cross 2,000 years ago and he loved everybody, but if his body is still in a grave today, he just died like a lot of other men died. But if that man was God and is God and he died and shed his blood for the, for the race of humanity who can be saved by his grace and he rose bodily and he's alive today and, and he's, he's, he's alive and he's been exalted, that makes all the difference and that is the good news of the gospel. But you know what the good news of the gospel is? Because he lives, we shall live also. That is the glorious work of redemption. So he preaches the resurrection of Christ. And then number four, the fourth point that we've got to boldly proclaim is the exaltation of Christ. Look at verse 33. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, folks, this is a really important statement at the end of verse 36. God has made Jesus to be Lord in Christ. We can very literally translate that. God has placed him in the position of being Lord in Christ. What, is, what does it mean? It's a Jewish phrase. 
And Paul would take that Jewish phrase and he would say it this way much later. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has been exalted as the supreme judge of the universe. Let me close with an illustration. As you preach the gospel, the deity, the death, the resurrection, and the exaltation of Christ, you are preaching to people who will someday look face to face with Jesus Christ and they will be judged by Him. You know, Pastor, I had a young man came back from Bible college who had bought into contemporary ministry and he said to me, Pastor, we need to make the gospel relevant. And I said to him, do you understand that that's blasphemy? There is nothing we can do to make the gospel relevant or even more relevant because there is nothing more relevant than the fact that he's God and he died and rose and he is the supreme judge and every man will stand before him. Folks, someday if you know Christ as your Savior, you will not be at the great white throne judgment. You'll be at the judgment seat of Christ and you'll look into the eyes of a Jewish man who was raised from the dead who is also God and he will be the judge of your service. Not your salvation, but your service. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. If you do not receive Christ as your Savior and you die in your sins, one day you'll be called out of hell and your body will be raised out of the grave and you will stand and you will look into the face of a glorified Jewish man who has the, the prince on his brow and in his hands and his side and his eyes will be as a flame of fire and he will say to you, depart from me, I never knew you and you'll be cast into the lake of fire. Folks, there is nothing more relevant than the fact that Jesus Christ has been made the supreme judge of the universe. And every man will stand before him. So the people respond. We don't have time to develop it. I've got one minute and I'm done. It says that they were stabbed. The word pricked is used in our Bibles. It means the Holy Spirit stabbed them. And they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Where we're guilty. And Peter used one word, repent. Change your thinking about the person and work of Jesus Christ and receive him and him alone as your personal Savior and you'll be saved, Peter said. And 3,000 got saved that day and the church was founded. And folks, that's still God's plan for the church to preach the gospel and to see people repent and believe and be saved and lives to be changed. How are you doing in preaching the gospel? Let's bow our heads. Every head bowed, every eye closed.